You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 6th day of December, 2009. I'd like to welcome all of my listeners back to the Corbett Report and invite them all, as always, to check into the websites CorbettReport.com, AlQaedaDoesn'tExist.com, and ReportageBook.com as well as those websites responsible for helping to broadcast this podcast and make my voice reach even further, including, of course, KROCKS Radio 1 at ZeroPointRadio.com, Cascadia Public Radio at CascadiaPublicRadio.org, Radio for All at RadioForAll.net, and Archive.org, where you can find a backup of each episode of the podcast going back to episode 70. As my listeners are no doubt well aware... The upcoming week promises to be one of the most important weeks since the inception of this podcast nearly three years ago. The battle against the globalists and those seeking to centralize governmental power in fewer and fewer unelected, unaccountable hands has in fact never been at a more crucial stage in recent memory as we are preparing for the Copenhagen-United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change Conference, taking place from December 7th to the 18th. I don't think I need to explain to my well-informed listeners the absolute central importance of these upcoming events to the world that is being shaped for your and my future, as well as the future of our children and grandchildren. So I Trust that everyone out there will be doubling, tripling, and quadrupling their efforts to raise awareness on the key issues leading up to this conference, and, of course, helping to broadcast all of the alternative media sources that are providing real information about what is really happening in Copenhagen. The Corbett Report hopes to be one of those sources that you can use for reliable information on this very crucial event. And as such, I have taken the step of launching a new website this weekend. ClimateGate.tv promises to be a one-stop information source for all things ClimateGate-related and Copenhagen-related, as well as all sorts of information related to climate science in general, including videos, news, editorial, and scientific articles. 
the climategate.tv site was only launched this weekend, but already has several dozen posts with more being added all the time. So please check climategate.tv and use the search function to find all sorts of information related to climate science and public policy issues, and then help to spread that word. I would like to offer a giant tip of my hat to Greg Nicolotis of We the People Will Not Be Chipped, who was the one who actually purchased the domain and then transferred that domain to me in order to launch this website. So once again, a great big thank you to Greg Nicoletos for his part in coming up with this idea, and I only hope I can live up to it as we approach such an incredibly crucial juncture in global history. And not only have I launched a new website, but we are also bringing reporting live to you from Copenhagen via Dr. Jacek Skrudlerek of Denmark, who is going to be reporting for the Corbett Report and Republic Broadcasting, not only from Copenhagen, but also from the alternate conferences that are taking place while the UNFCCC conference is happening. These alternate conferences feature speeches by the likes of Steve McIntyre, Ian Plimmer, Lord Moncton, and many others besides. So this promises to be an extremely important and effective way of spreading truth about climate issues at this key juncture. So please stay tuned to The Corbett Report and ClimateGate.tv for all the latest from Copenhagen, including, hopefully, videos and interviews from those events. And right now, without further ado, let's get to today's real news. Today's first real news story comes to us from the What's Up With That blog via ClimateGate.tv. 4th of December 2009. UK Met Office announces a do-over. Entire global temperature series, 160 years worth. The Met Office plans to re-examine 160 years of temperature data after admitting that public confidence in the science on man-made global warming has been shattered by leaked emails. The new analysis of the data will take three years, meaning that the Met Office will not be able to state with absolute confidence the extent of the warming trend until the end of 2012. The Met Office database is one of the three main sources of temperature data analysis on which the UN's main climate change science body relies for its assessment that global warming is a serious danger to the world. Today's second real news story comes from ABC News, 2nd of December 2009. President Obama's secret. Only 100 al-Qaeda now in Afghanistan. With new surge, 1,000 U.S. soldiers and $300 million for every one al-Qaeda fighter. As he justified sending 30,000 more troops to Afghanistan at a cost of $30 billion a year, President Barack Obama's description Tuesday of the al-Qaeda cancer in that country left out one key fact. 
U.S. intelligence officials have concluded there are only about 100 al-Qaeda fighters in the entire country. A senior U.S. intelligence official told ABCNews.com the approximate estimate of 100 al-Qaeda members left in Afghanistan reflects the conclusion of American intelligence agencies and the Defense Department. The relatively small number was part of the intelligence passed on to the White House as President Obama conducted his deliberations. President Obama made only a vague reference to the size of the al-Qaeda presence in his speech at West Point when he said, Al-Qaeda has not re-emerged in Afghanistan in the same number as before 9-11, but they retain their safe havens along the border. A spokesman at the White House's National Security Council, Chris Hensman, said he could not comment on intelligence matters. Today's third real news story comes to us via The New World Next Week, 3rd of December, 2009. Story number two comes from allgov.com, and I'll reference, we've of course referenced sites that we enjoy and that we find very useful, such as naturalnews.com or historycommons.org. I've been enjoying allgov.com. I like their succinct articles, their simple sourcing, so that's where we're going right now for Democratic Senate report says Rumsfeld and General Franks let Osama bin Laden escape to Pakistan. While Obama prepares to announce his decision regarding a surge for Afghanistan, Senate Democrats have released a report that argues that the Bush administration failed to capture Osama when it had the chance in late 2001. The report, called Tora Bora Revisited, How We Failed to Get Bin Laden and Why It Matters Today, which is offered as a PDF download from allgov.com. The report pins the blame on former Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld and the top U.S. commander at the time, General Tommy Franks, for not sending enough troops into the Tora Bora region where bin Laden was hiding and from which he eventually escaped into Pakistan. The failure to grab al-Qaeda's leader allowed him to emerge as a potent symbolic figure. I think that's a pretty key <laughs> phrase there. To emerge as a potent symbolic figure who continues to attract a steady flow of money and inspire fanatics worldwide. Today's next real news story comes from CNET News, 1st of December 2009. EFF sues feds for info on social network surveillance. The Electronic Frontier Foundation sued the CIA, the U.S. Department of Defense, Department of Justice, and three other government agencies on Tuesday for allegedly refusing to release information about how they are using social networks in surveillance and investigations. The nonprofit Internet Rights Watchdog Group formally asked more than a dozen agencies or departments in early October to provide records about federal guidelines on the use of sites like Facebook, Twitter, and Flickr for investigative or data-gathering purposes, according to the lawsuit. The requests were prompted by published news reports about how authorities are using social networks to monitor citizen activities and aid in investigations. For example, according to the lawsuit, Government officials have used Facebook to hunt for fugitives and search for evidence of underage drinking, research the activities of an activist on Facebook and LinkedIn, watched YouTube to identify riot suspects, searched the home of a social worker because of Twitter messages regarding police actions he sent during the G20 summit, and used fake identities to trick Facebook users into accepting friend requests. Today's final real news story comes from the Daily Mail, 5th of December 2009. 
Dr. Kelly was murdered, and there has to be a new inquest, say six top doctors. Six doctors who believe government scientist David Kelly was murdered have launched a groundbreaking legal action to demand the inquest into his death is reopened. They are to publish a hard-hitting report which they claim proves the weapons expert did not commit suicide, as the Hudden report decided. They have also engaged lawyers to write to Attorney General Baroness Scotland and the coroner Nicholas Gardiner, calling for a full re-examination of the circumstances of his death. Dr. Kelly was found dead at a beauty spot near his Oxfordshire home in 2003, days after he was exposed as the source of a story that Tony Blair's government sexed up its dossier on Saddam Hussein's weapons of mass destruction to justify invading Iraq. In one final phone conversation, he told a caller he wouldn't be surprised, quote, if my body was found in the woods, end quote. Welcome, my friends. Welcome to episode 111 of the Corbett Report, a brief history of biowarfare. It was in early November of this year that a strange new virus began sweeping its way across the Ukraine, bringing with it panic, confusion, and reports of devastating and bizarre effects. Although those reports, needless to say, did not occur in the controlled corporate media of most Western nations, but they certainly did occur in certain alternative mediums across the world, including Russia Today. The first off this hour, the mutant flu virus, which has sent waves of panic throughout western Ukraine, continues exceedingly unstoppable march. Only the fevered speculation of where it came from is spreading faster than the illness. Igor Ogrodnev reports tonight from western Ukraine. One and a half million have been infected. Tens of thousands more fall ill every day. More than 300 people, many of them with no previous health problems, are dead. There is a high population density and internal migration in the Ukraine, and this creates a greater risk for our country. But the rapid spread of disease has given rise to rumors, finger-pointing and conspiracy theories. Doctors in Western Ukraine have told of post-mortems where the lungs of the victims were said to be as black as charcoal, comparing the symptoms to the Spanish flu which wiped out millions in 1918. Others even believe a pneumonic plague is to blame for the high death toll. Another theory causing a frenzy on the internet links the outbreak to deliberate mass spraying of chemicals by planes over Kiev. Local newspapers reported hundreds of eyewitness accounts suggesting this. And then there are those who claim the epidemic was engineered by pharmaceutical companies. When you look at what's happening in Ukraine, and, and the fact is that this may be a mutation of H1N1, Autopsies being performed are showing that the victim's lungs are pitch black. The research uh, in H1N1, uh, we can trace it back to basically, it should be called the Jurassic flu. Uh, the DNA of a woman who died of the 1918 Spanish flu, the 1918 pandemic, was recovered from uh, her corpse. Uh, her, her, the DNA was used to recreate this virus. 
The World Health Organization denies that this is anything but ordinary swine flu, but warns that the situation remains critical. This is a virus which everyone is susceptible to, and we don't know in whom it will cause severe disease and in whom it might just cause mild disease. So everyone needs to take a precaution against this disease. The government response has come under attack. No vaccinations were given before the outbreak, and critics say not enough Tamiflu was stockpiled. Now the antiviral drugs have arrived, but there are uncertainties about who's being given access to them. People in the streets say that ahead of the presidential election, politicians have used the crisis to boost their profile or shoot down their rivals. There's one piece of advice for the government. Stop confusing the population. Meanwhile, in western Ukraine, whole hospitals have been converted into emergency wards. Stefania Petrikovich began to feel unwell one day two weeks ago. Soon she could barely breathe and had a temperature of almost 40. I was nearly dead when I was delivered here. They put me on drip and I don't even remember what happened afterwards. Authorities say infection rates have stabilized for the moment, despite what the rumor mongers say. And the streets are full again. Here in Lviv, people are acting as if the threat has receded. Unlike a few weeks ago, hardly anyone is wearing protective masks. But the scope of the swine flu problem remains astonishing. Officials say familiarity with virus precautions is breeding complacency and warn that new waves of disease are imminent. Now it goes without saying that reports like that certainly raised the attention of the general public and got them interested in this story. And unfortunately, there was a dearth of reporting from any so-called mainstream media sources about these mysterious outbreaks in the Ukraine. So there was very little to go on for the first few weeks other than vague and unsubstantiated reports of similar types of outbreaks and reports of deaths. In that absence of any credible reporting on the subject, what we were left with was a lot of innuendo, unverifiable stories, and things which really could not be proven one way or another. One of the best known, and one that we've mentioned in a previous installment of the New World next week, was the story of Joseph Moshe, a Israeli citizen slash Mossad agent slash microbiologist, who, it was claimed by Dr. A. True Ott, who runs a radio show in Republic Broadcasting, made a phone call to Dr. Ott's show, and the phone call was apparently received off-air, where apparently, according to Dr. Ott, Moshe revealed that Baxter Biopharma Solutions was deliberately tainting H1N1 swine flu vaccines being produced in the Ukraine. Shortly thereafter, Joseph Moshe was involved in a bizarre standoff and arrest in which his car was surrounded by SWAT teams and police vans, which used tear gas and pepper spray and even microwave weapons against this man's car. And all of that was well documented on the mainstream controlled corporate media news. The official story was that he had made threatening statements against the White House and that was the reason for the standoff. But, of course, Dr. Ott says that there were other reasons that he was being taken out of the picture. Of course, none of that is really verifiable because there is no recording of the conversation that he allegedly had with Dr. Ott. 
And the last update to that particular story is from November 18th of 2009, where PimpandTurtle.com apparently has confirmed that Joseph Moshe is being held in the Patton State Mental Hospital in California, which either verifies or discredits that story if you're one to jump to conclusions. Although, of course, who is to say what is correct in this case? Because we have no real independent way of verifying this information. Nor do we have any real way to independently verify information like this one from fto.co.za. Airplanes sprayed mysterious substance over Ukraine days before pneumonic plague outbreak, which goes into the heavy spraying that was reportedly going on over Kiev just days before this strange new virus popped up, of course leading many to suspect a causal relationship. But again, although it certainly could be the case, we really don't have very much to go on other than some eyewitness reports of spraying that was happening before the outbreak took place. On November 17th of 2009, the WHO came out to say that tests of swine flu samples from the Ukraine showed that there were no significant mutations of the virus, that it was the regular H1N1 that was circulating in other countries. And finally, the controlled corporate media started to pick up the story, and for example, on the 21st of November, the Washington Post began talking about it, but in a very different light. For example, the Washington Post headline was, In Ukraine, H1N1 pandemic sets off panic and politicking, which is all about how this swine flu panic in the Ukraine may have been a political distraction President Yushchenko was using in order to grandstand as a savior in a time of crisis for the nation and to help his re-election bid, as he is coming up for re-election very soon. Now, all of this is very interesting, but it's very difficult to say anything conclusively about what is or is not happening or has or has not happened in the Ukraine. And although it's now been over a month since this supposedly new strain of the virus was reported, there is still very little evidence to suggest conclusively one way or another that this is or is not some type of new biological agent or a different strain of the disease. Given the lack of concrete evidence on this story, it was with some relief that I saw Mike Adams, the health ranger of naturalnews.com, who came up with a very good and very reasoned article about the various theories surrounding this Ukraine flu, in an article, H1N1 Superflu Plague in Ukraine Sparks Concern, Conspiracy Theories About Origins. Again, it was a great relief to see this article because it did go in line with much of my thinking on this subject. So, it was a great honor that I had earlier this week to talk to Mike Adams, the health ranger of naturalnews.com, about the Ukraine flu, but also about bioweapons in general. Let's listen to a short extract from that conversation. Well, I got curious about this, too, as you did, and I started to investigate it. And, you know, I'm an investigative reporter like like you, and so I look for the, the facts and I report on what I can find. And when it came to this issue of the super flu in, in the Ukraine, I really couldn't find any reliable facts that, that pointed to this definitely being a, a conspiracy or being caused by aerial spraying of chemtrails, for example, even though those were some of the theories that were out there. And, and some, some people were talking about that as being factual, like we know this is the cause or it has to be the cause. Well, I, I couldn't really find anything to support that. So I, I published an article stating what I couldn't find and just saying at this point we have a lot of questions 
and it's certainly possible that this was done by aerial spraying. You know, it's possible it's a bioweapon. It's possible that it was engineered by man, but we, we can't prove it. And until we can really have stronger evidence to support it, I'm not going to go on the record and say, yeah, that's exactly what's happening. So it was just an article of caution. And that's, it's, you know, some people like that, some people don't, but that's, that's the approach that I take. Well, I, I agree wholeheartedly with your assessment there. And um, you're certainly right. This has generated a lot of questions and sort of online activity because there has been such a, a deafening silence on the issue in the controlled corporate media. So sure. um, have you heard any updates or new information on this story since that original article on the 16th? Just updates on the number of people sick, the number of hospitalized, which is close to 100,000 now. Uh, about 400 have died from it. But, you know, if you really look at these numbers, the number of people infected, which is over 1.5 million, and the number dead, 400, I mean, that's not a very high fatality rate. If this is a super flu, you know, uh, high-powered plague, it's not very dangerous. And that point hasn't seemed to have penetrated the, the, the consciousness of many people who are writing about this. I mean, just do the math on it. It doesn't have a high fatality rate. And I'm, I'm certain from everything else that I've studied, that most of the people in the Ukraine who are being infected with this are vitamin D deficient. So they have suppressed immune systems. If I, if I uh, had the time, I'd be happy to go travel to the Ukraine, walk right through the hospitals. I'd lick the doorknobs. I'm not afraid of it because I have plenty of vitamin D and I have a, an immune system that's functioning. So it doesn't, doesn't concern me. Well, that's, that's an excellent point, and in fact, that's something I want to get into. But maybe we'll, we'll get a little bit more into some of the, the natural cures that people can use uh, a little bit later on. But um, just going back to that article, of course, there are unsubstantiated theories that this may have been a bioweapon release and, and unconfirmed reports, as you say, of aerial spraying and taking place at the beginning of the outbreak. But as you state in the article, it's unconfirmed reports and only speculation. But the larger issue here, I think, is that regardless of whether or not this this particular strain of flu was a bioweapon release. There are still many people out there who don't really fully appreciate that there are such things as bioweapons and that there is a very yeah. long history of biowarfare. So, Mike Adams, you have the floor. I know you've done voluminous <laughs> amounts of research on this topic and written on it extensively. So how would you start broaching this subject with someone who may not be familiar with it? Well, I'd start by first, for those who may not be familiar with my background, just so that they don't think that I'm just coming in and being skeptical. You know, I've written about 9-11, and I'm convinced that 9-11 was in some way an inside job, for example. I've written about the Federal Reserve and the scam of the money supply. You know, I, I cover the scams of the FDA and the FTC and the pharmaceutical industry. So I am known for actually exposing conspiracies. And so I, I you know, I bring a lot of, I think, street cred to the table when, when looking at any issue. I don't claim to be an expert on this Ukrainian flu or even bioweapons in, in particular. You know, guys like Dr. Len Horowitz are far more knowledgeable about the specifics. But what I am good at is sort of looking at the big picture and, and seeing how the pieces of the puzzle fit together in a very, uh, in a very uh, independent mindset kind of way, where I'm, I'm not swayed easily by the mainstream media or, or the lies of politicians, you know, areas of information like that. So when it comes to bioweapons, to answer your question, the, uh, the biggest thing that comes to mind is the, the cover-up that has gone on for decades about the, the degree of bioweapons development that has taken place not only in the United States, but throughout the world, 
and the very real possibility that many of these uh, these weaponized viruses, or in some cases maybe even bacteria, have either inadvertently escaped these uh, biohazard facilities or have been sold off as bioweapons to certain groups that could then use them against us or may have already used them against us. Uh, for example, I, I think it, there's a very distinct possibility that the, the first spread of the AH1N1 swine flu vaccine could have been released by a military contractor operating near the U.S.-Mexico border. I don't have proof of it, but I think that's a very distinct possibility. Excellent. Well, that is that is all very key information. So so let's go back in time a little bit and, and talk about some of the history of bioweapons that, as you say, it's been unfolding for, for decades, at least in its modern incarnation. And of course, people think that there are international treaties and things against uh, using biological agents in warfare. But of course, there are ways to sub subvert that and get around that in terms of developing new bioweapons. So, so let's talk about sure. that issue a little bit. Well, if you, if you go back to the origins of bioweapons, it takes you back to the same place as the origins of the pharmaceutical industry, which is, of course, Nazi Germany and IG Farben. And if you, if you look back in the late 1930s and the early 1940s, the, the, the Nazi regime was very heavily uh, invested in experimentation on human prisoners. Uh, this is well documented, by the way. This isn't, this isn't just theory. This is well documented. And in fact, the Bayer Corporation, or what eventually became the Bayer Corporation, was involved in, in some of those experimentations that were taking place on, on human prisoners in Nazi concentration camps. Now, after World War II, when many of the Nazi leaders were then taken to trial and, and prosecuted for their war crimes, IG Farben was broken up into three different pharmaceutical companies, or three different chemical companies. Uh, one of those uh, being Bayer. And from that, we get all kinds of products that are used today. I don't mean to get off topic, but this is important. That from the bioweapons research, we now have artificial food coloring chemicals. Those are petrochemical derivatives. We have pesticides, we have fertilizers, and we have pharmaceuticals. These all have a common origin, and that is Nazi Germany bioweapons development. And not very many people know that. I know you do, but some of your listeners may not have known that. Mike Adams of naturalnews.com. And of course, we go on to detail it some in that conversation. If you go and listen to the interview in its entirety at the homepage corbettreport.com, you'll find some of the ways in which we flesh that out and bring that information up to the present. But suffice it to say, I don't think any of my listeners will be surprised to hear that, yes, indeed, the biological warfare experimentation of the Nazis was transplanted to the United States under Operation Paperclip and continued apace for many decades. And certainly, this wasn't simply an American phenomenon. A huge test program was carried out by Portendown scientists, sanctioned by government. One series was carried out in the 1960s off the Dorset coast near Weymouth. Two types of bacteria were sprayed from a modified ship, the Ice Whale. One, known as Bacillus globigii, or BG, simulated anthrax. The other was E. coli. If you got close to the ship, you'd be able to see the mist, but, but away from it, you wouldn't be able to see at all. The spraying was done always at night, because otherwise the sunlight would have killed the E. coli. 
Uh, the BG was in spore form, so the sunlight wouldn't kill that. It, it was that was almost sort of armor plated. Um, so all the attacks, and that's what they were. They were simulated attacks occurred at night. Of course, the state in a democracy is meant to serve the people rather than the people serve the state. Uh, and we have more democratic political culture now that allows the kind of questions that you're asking uh, to be asked. And when there's no transparency, when there's no accountability, then people in these situations find it very tempting to abuse their power and simply assume that they know best. It's pretty obvious that we do need to know um, how to defend the country. I have no problem with that whatsoever. I do have a problem with experiments being carried out in public areas, without public knowledge, with no independent safety oversight. As the 60s ended, Portendown's testing program became more ambitious and spread from sea to air. After they'd um, done the experiments of the large-scale releases from the ice whale, they, they wanted to scale those up and they had a Canberra bomber which they, they, they modified so it would hold very large amounts of bacteria, up to about a thousand gallons, and would spray that from the aeroplane as, as it flew low across uh, part of the UK. Throughout 1967, the dual-purpose bomber used as its target RAF Tarrant Rushton in Dorset. Yet the bacteria being sprayed would have been carried some 50 miles on the wind towards Somerset. I don't think they were any different from the experiments from the ice world because they were using the same bacteria, the E. coli, mixed with the Bacillus clavigii, and the amounts that were released were similar to the, the amounts um, from the ice whale, although they did intend from the documents to, 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 to build up to, to, to larger releases. In the late 90s, Professor Brian Spratt, now based at Imperial College in London, was asked by the Defence Ministry to independently review the potential health implications of spreading bacteria over populated areas. Well, I was really looking at the experiments from about the the early 60s through to the mid 70s, and I, I was given access to all of the, the scientific reports um, that had been released under the 30-year rule, and a couple of documents which were still at that time classified, um, which were the sort of the the, the, the basic laboratory report, internal laboratory reports about these experiments that were carried out uh, in the south of England, spraying the bacteria across the, the Dorset coast, and, and a few other experiments that were carried out. The report focused on all trials carried out by Portendown from the 60s to the mid-70s. It concluded that on the whole the tests were safe, although it did add that some people suffering from chronic illness could have been infected. These people would have been unaware of the secret military activities in the area. Nobody knew about these, but these were very secret, and so certainly if there had been a small cluster of cases of, of, of pneumonia, uh, for example, then they certainly wouldn't have been picked up because everyone gets pneumonia, well not everyone, but pneumonia is a relatively common disease and so doctors would not, I think, have, have known that anything odd was going on. So that's, I mean, I think that's one of the interesting things that these, these releases were done on a public that were completely uh, unwittingly exposed to these agents and something I think we wouldn't contemplate doing, the MOD wouldn't contemplate doing now, but at the time uh, it was considered to be justified. Now, that was a clip from a 2004 UK documentary entitled Top Secrets Revealed, which I highly suggest people go to the documentation section of today's episode and take a look at in its entirety, because it is an extremely interesting and surprisingly frank 
investigation of the UK's own biological warfare facility at Pordendown, Wiltshire. And it goes into a lot of the biological warfare experiments that were conducted against the British population without their knowledge or consent over a period of decades from the 1950s all the way up through the 1970s, including exposing underground factory workers to pathogens on purpose to test their effects, spraying members of the public who are traveling on a regular railway train on the Salisbury-Exeter line with live bacteria, spraying the entire population with bacteria from ships and from airplanes. But as good as that documentary is in pointing out all of these things which have gone on and which are now admitted to have gone on for many decades, it does, as you can hear from the end of that clip that we just listened to, tend to whitewash things by saying this was merely a Cold War era phenomenon and has nothing to do with the way the MOD operates today. Yeah, right. Well, let's start to break that down by taking a look at an article that I wrote earlier this year as the new H1N1 swine flu was just starting to break in Mexico, and I wrote an article entitled Governments and Biowarfare, a brief history, where I go into detail after detail after detail about various times in which American and British governments have experimented on their own populations from the 1930s, the 1950s, the 1960s, and of course even 1990. More than 1,500 six-month-old black and Hispanic babies in Los Angeles are given an experimental measles vaccine that had never been licensed for use in the United States, and the CDC later admits that parents were never informed that the vaccine being injected into their children was experimental. Or 1994, with a technique called gene tracking, Dr. Garth Nicholson at the MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas, discovers that many returning Desert Storm veterans are infected with an altered strain of Mycoplasma incognitus, a microbe commonly used in the production of biological weapons. Incorporated into its molecular structure is 40% of the HIV protein coat, indicating that it has been man-made. Of course, there are links to all of the examples cited in that document, but I think it's the information that comes on later that best puts to rest the ridiculous canard that biological warfare experimentation ended after the Cold War. Quote, As horrifying as these admitted tests of biological weapons on unwitting subjects are, Perhaps even more frightening is the knowledge that governments have a documented history of using biological agents against their own citizens in bioterror false flag operations. It is no coincidence that two of the most well-known and devastating biological releases this decade have traced back to Fort Detrick, the home of the U.S. Biological Weapons Research Program since the 1950s and the current home of U.S. AMRID, and Porton Down, Fort Detrick's British equivalent. In the late winter of 2001, an outbreak of foot and mouth disease ravaged the British farming industry, requ requiring the government-mandated destruction of millions of animals. The losses to British farmers were nearly incalculable, with a number of cases of farmers ending their own lives in anguish over their loss of livelihood. In April of 2001, the Sunday Express reported that the outbreak came just months 
after an audit of Porton Down, a top-secret government bioweapons research facility housing such agents as TB, anthrax, and smallpox, found that vials containing foot-and-mouth samples were missing from the lab. Authorities tried to play down the report by suggesting that animal rights activists had stolen and released the samples from the maximum security government laboratory. Authorities failed to explain why animal rights activists would be interested in releasing a biological agent that would result in the destruction of millions of animals, or how they were able to penetrate the multiple layers of defenses in the heavily defended laboratory. Just months later, anthrax-laced letters began to show up in the offices of the Bush administration's most vocal media opponents and political rivals in the U.S. The administration and their puppets in the corporate-controlled media immediately began to theorize that the anthrax used in the letters was a crude concoction that an al-Qaeda operative could have mixed in a bathtub. It later emerged that these anthrax spores were in fact the most sophisticated weaponized form of the deadly plague ever seen, and the particular strain used in its production was traced back to Fort Detrick. It later emerged that key members of the Bush administration had been on Cipro, the anti-anthrax drug, since the morning of 9-11. The entire story of the anthrax investigation is lengthy and convoluted, but extremely important for a better understanding of false flag bioterrorism. Of course, these are only the well-known examples from the past decade, but naturally there are others, including the 2007 foot-and-mouth outbreak in England, which was also found to come from a government lab. Even worse than these examples is the knowledge that the types of bioweapons that governments around the world have been developing far outstrip anthrax or foot-and-mouth in sophistication and effectiveness. Although the full extent of American bioweapons research remains classified, it is public knowledge that the American military was already experimenting with race-specific bioweapons at least since 1970, a technology that the apartheid South African government was known to possess, and which Israel was developing last decade. It does not take much imagination to envision why those two two governments would have been interested in the technology, but it may be surprising to learn that the American government has not only been developing race-specific bioweapons, but that key government officials have advocated their use as a way of furthering American foreign policy. In September 2000, a neocon think tank called Project for a New American Century released a policy paper, Rebuilding America's Defenses, that contained the following chilling quotation. Advanced forms of biological warfare that can target specific genotypes may transform biological warfare from the realm of terror to a politically useful tool. Prominent PNAC members included Cheney, Rumsfeld, Wolfowitz, Jeb Bush, and Scooter Libby. End quote. Now, the idea of a race-specific bioweapon being a politically useful tool is no doubt chilling, but one that we must look at because it has been advocated by people who are in the positions of power to actually make that happen. So what does it mean for these biowarfare agents to be politically useful tools, and to what political agenda can they be put to use? 
Those are the types of questions that I raised not only in my recent conversation with Mike Adams, but also in a recent conversation that I had with Stephen Lendman. Stephen Lindman is a retired businessman who has spent the last several years writing articles and engaging in political activism related to war and peace, social, economic, and political equality, justice for oppressed peoples, and specifically the long-suffering people of Haiti and the Palestinians. His articles frequently appear on globalresearch.ca, and it was thus with great interest that I turned to him last month for more information about the political agenda behind using biological warfare agents. Oh, oh, and another major issue that, that I've written about in a couple of my articles, the, the motive of depopulation. I absolutely believe uh, Ukraine, the swine flu vaccines. I absolutely believe the first thought I had in my mind, James, when I began writing about the swine flu vaccines were, I saw three motives behind wanting the government to have everybody take this toxic stuff. Number one, we've got uh, two, two seemed obvious to me, uh, the profits for the drug companies. I mean, they'll, they'll make a mint on this. The second thing that seemed obvious was we, we have a major economic uh, crisis going on. Forget about uh, the positive reports. Uh, there, there are millions and millions and millions of people in this country that are, that are suffering dismally, and job losses are still in big, big numbers, home foreclosures, uh, savings just, just, just lost, people living in fear that, my God, Monday morning they'll get a pink slip. So we've got this terrible stuff going on, and, and all the, the salvation for Wall Street is not uh, transferred over to Main Street. So you want, you want to divert people's attention from an economic crisis? Give them a health crisis. So that was number two. And the other, the third one was depopulation. And this goes back many, many decades, including to what I quoted from, a secret Henry Kissinger memorandum. You know the NSSM? Um, 200. 200, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, 1974, I believe. Well, it goes back further than that. I mean, the Rockefellers uh, have wanted uh, depopulation uh, decades before Kissinger. But, but, but Kissinger wanted to uh, depopulate on the order of something like 500 million people. And I think his idea was to do it by involuntary sterilizations. Well, that could be behind this. Also, uh, toxic vaccines that will kill people, uh, not uh, uh, the same day they take the vaccine. Maybe they'll get sick uh, with some lethal disease a year later, two years, five years later, unable to connect it to the vaccine. So I think those three motives are behind what's going on, both the vaccines, both what's going on in Ukraine, and I see it as a very ugly situation. Uh, I know the people in the power structure think there are too many people in the world. There are billions too many people in the world. Uh, we can be uh, far better off if we cut the population maybe in half, maybe get rid of a few billion people. And, and, and one of the phrases used is to call these people useless eaters. They're using up resources that the power people want to sell and make a profit for. They don't want these useless people having access to these resources. So what do you do about it? Wars are too slow and messy. Uh, you, uh, I mean, uh, infect them with some kind of an illness. Kill them off that way. And we'll just chalk it up to, oh, my goodness, what a shame. So many people got sick. We warned you about it. We told you to take this vaccine. Uh, now they're dying off like flies. It could make the 1918 uh, 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 scale, uh, look, look like a picnic if this thing is as bad as, as some people and maybe myself fear it, it could turn out to be. I mean, we could be talking about numbers that are beyond imagination.
Now, it should come as no surprise to regular listeners of this program that this road, like so many roads, lead back to the eugenics population control agenda. And one of the main roads leading directly to that agenda, of course, right now, goes through Copenhagen. When we are talking about the politics of man-made climate change, we are talking about the politics of modern-day eugenics being implemented in order to cull an excess population that the financial oligarchy no longer deems necessary. This is not an exaggeration. This is not something that I say lightly. In previous episodes, we've talked about example after example after example of how the modern man-made climate change religion has transformed humanity into a cancer on this planet that must be eliminated. It's not hard to imagine who benefits from that type of ideology or for getting the public to accept their own demise, but... One doesn't have to scratch very hard in order to find an answer to such a question. So let's turn to a very recent article sent in by a listener from the 3rd of December 2009, BBC News. Website appeal to fund family planning to cut CO2. Quote, Meeting the demand for family planning in poor nations is a cheap and effective way to cut CO2 emissions, a new website initiative claims. The UK-based Optimum Population Trust says fast-rising population levels lead to growing emissions. The website is urging wealthy people to offset their own CO2 emissions by funding contraception programs. It says taking such action is better value than spending money on wind turbines, solar power, or hybrid cars. End quote. Now, I will leave my listeners to go and take a look at that article and to contemplate what it is really telling us. And I'm sure that my listeners will be well equipped in order to understand what the real subtext of this text is. But suffice it to say, I will be writing an article on this subject this week, especially now as we're coming into Copenhagen and all of the man-made climate change hysteria which we're going to be subjected to in the coming days. It's important to keep in mind what is the real agenda behind man-made climate change. At any rate, this is not a diversion from today's topic because today's topic ultimately is about trying to fathom why governments would develop such things as race-specific bioweapons or would release biological warfare agents that are unpredictable in their spread and will only cause massive death. That is because massive death is something that some people on this planet actively desire. Now, for the incredulous in the audience, one possible way to test a statement like that would be to look into the UK-based Optimum Population Trust think tank, which is the source of that last BBC News article, and look at some of the patrons of that organization, and then start to examine their backgrounds. And it will not be very long before you find people like Paul Ehrlich, who co-wrote textbooks like Ecoscience back in 1977, which urged the culling of the population, forced abortions, and putting sterilization agents into the water without the public's knowledge or consent. 
The mindset of the people involved in these types of programs is not easily entered into by people like you or I, but these people exist, and it's vital that we know what they are up to and that we work to expose these programs so that they cannot be used against us. That's it for today. I am your host, James Corbett, and I am encouraging you and pleading with you to stay tuned to The Corbett Report, youtube.com slash corbettreport, and climategate.tv for all of the latest information about the Copenhagen Conference and the alternate conferences which are taking place in Denmark as the world's leaders gather to decide our fate. These are world historical times, and all I can do is ask people to join me in spreading the truth about what is happening. Please join me again next week for episode 112 of the Corbett Report, Showdown in Copenhagen. My personal opinion is that we have to keep geoengineering on the table. We have to look at it very carefully because we might get desperate enough to want to use it.